start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance from This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the Event Horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. I'm your other host, Susan Fox. And with us, we have today a rather remarkable guest. His name is Michael A. Levine, and you have probably heard much of his work without realizing it. Welcome to the show, Michael. Well, I am delighted to be here. We have been... Uh, the, our first contact was from your publicist, who suggested that we might want to listen to the soundtrack for Siren, which is an upcoming uh, TV series. I think it's already debuted. It has already debuted, and uh, people like it. And it's on Freeform. That's correct. That's the rebranded ABC family. Uh, This is the scariest and most grown-up show they've ever had on that network, and uh, it's quite daring of them to put this um but it's it will with one help hopes it will help them establish a new image for their uh, network a little more sophisticated than the fair of the past a, a little bit less um how do we say it uh it's well disney already had a lot of children's channels this is this is their grown up or mm-hmm. growing up channel yeah, I mean, and my, the siren looks like a very scary creature indeed. I've <laughs> heck of a place to see to get your information on on you know ancient uh, Greek mythology, but but the buses in town have had these uh, the ads on these all all week. Well, the the image here is they've combined two different Greek mythologies into one, which is the the mermaid myth and also the myth of the siren. The siren uh, is uh, the oh the these women who have these voices that can call sailors to their doom. Uh, Ulysses had to tie himself to the mast, but this is an updated contemporary version of the story in which. These it's a science fictional approach in which they actually exist, and they've been driven out of their uh, hunting grounds at the bottom of the ocean by overfishing and pollution and so forth, and they've now come into contact with humans, and uh, the result is uh, a little bit of misunderstanding on everybody's behalf and, uh, and more than a little bit of violence, but... Um, it's very sympathetic to the mermaids themselves, and uh, these are not your aerial kinds of mermaids. These are these are badass women. This is a women's empowerment post Me Too kind of show, and uh, it 
Yeah, this is this is like your time's up definitely, uh, and uh, so it it it's actually surprisingly relevant and contemporary, despite its sort of fantastic premise. The the music itself is remarkable in several respects. That will summon sailors to their doom, I think. <laughs> it's it's beautiful. It's ethereal. It's it's haunting. Yes, haunting is a good word. And looking back on the work that you have done over the years, it's easy to see why you were chosen for this project. Let's hear a little bit of it now. Well, we've got um, from the best of Sirens season one, we have a little snippet of something called Siren Call, which is the first cut of the uh, the first season album, which, as I understand it, has not yet been released. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, we're still discussing exactly what we're going to do. So here, so that we don't run afoul of the licensing issues, we're just going to play an excerpt from it. was called Siren Call. And tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about how this idea, this thematic construct came to be. Well, the theme itself is both dark and light. The, the first chord is, to get all technical here, a B major chord, and the second one is an F sharp minor. And the the siren's voice, which is uh, sung by a wonderful singer named Mariana Barreto, who goes by the stage name of Mari, uh, is uh, just the right quality. I've worked a lot with Mari. She's sung on many of my projects and uh, several films and, and other television shows. But uh, this is – and plus I produced an album of hers um, uh, called Samira and the Wind – but uh, she had just exactly the right color for this character. And it's interesting because there were it was a lot of shuffling at the beginning on the show as to what the character of the music for the show should be. But this is the one piece that everybody seemed to agree on, and her voice in particular. So uh, that, that was kind of the foundation. But there are also some important elements. One of the sounds that I use in the show a lot is an instrument called the chiola, which is an octaviola. And it's something you can put under your chin, but it sounds like this. And so that that sound is used a lot of times for something 
a foghorn light sound that it, that happens you know very intense but it's also um i use it in the the the, the call the siren call as uh for making these kind of whale like sounds You layer that and put lots of uh, uh, delay on it, and suddenly, you know, you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And it really transports you. It's It sets a tone that uh, you almost don't need the visuals for the TV show. You, you, you can just imagine, you can visualize where you are and what's going on around you just from the music alone, which is... Uh, um, Wonderful achievement, not all. I mean, this is this elevates the production uh, past the point where you would expect it to be for a TV show. Ooh, are we going into the TV ghetto mode here? Yeah. Um, no, it's uh, thank you. I appreciate it. There are some really great VFX as well, um, visual effects that uh, add tremendously to the show and are also unusual for television. Uh, some of them were done by the same people who do the Game of Thrones uh, VFX, which are award-winning and fabulous. And uh, some of the, the effects on this show are absolutely breathtaking. So e- even if you don't like the story, you can tune in just for the eye candy. And ear candy. And ear candy. Sure. So you've, you've been at ear candy for a long time, I understand. <laughs> That's a that's an interesting segue into candy, isn't it? Though <laughs> I am the queen of segues. I, your viewers, your listeners may not know to what you are referring, but uh, you're talking about probably probably what remains my best known contribution to Western culture to this day, which is the composing the music for the Kit Kat Give Me a Break jingle. Uh, yes, so that you is. Really- so y'all really have been listening to this man's work all your life. No, really. And it won't come out of your head. And now, <laughs> and now you won't be able to hear anything else for the rest of the hour. Yeah. Well, but we have, um, we have a few other little notes about, uh, about your early days and your origins. Notes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you formed a band called No Guitars. I remember that. And you were the first, one of the first, um, you had one of the first music videos on MTV way back in the day, back when MTV actually meant music television. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's fascinating. The first video on MTV was um, Video Killed the Radio Star by the Mm -hmm. Muggles, which Mm -hmm. had a keyboard player, uh, this, this kid from Germany named Hans something. Hans, and, uh, Hans Zimmer, yes. the percussionist. Yeah, yeah, that was the guy. guy. Uh, so we ended up crossing paths a little bit later. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we also had a video on shortly after theirs. They did a little better than we did. In fact, I have a funny story about No Guitars, which is that our keyboard player was playing in our band and another band at the same time. And he he it got to the point where he couldn't do both bands because the schedules kept colliding. And so he decided that we, he just, he thought the other band had a really cute star, this this young teenage singer who was a good performer and stuff, but our music was so much more interesting, so he quit Bon Jovi. <laughs> Maybe not the best career decision he ever made. So I, I've, I've apologized to him many times since. So 
the uh, the idea of no guitars was that it in fact had none, <laughs> and instead it relied heavily on the strings. That uh, guitars had strings the last time I checked. Uh, string instruments, as in the string section. I'm sorry. Right. Well, there wasn't really a string section. There was. I was playing electric violin, and people kept saying, "Wow, your guitarist is really great." When they'd hear recordings, and I, I got so annoyed, I decided to call the band No Guitars. Yeah, that would that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. We have uh, we have a clip of that. You know, this will this will take you back a few decades. It's called "I Don't Believe It." We'll just play a, a couple, a, a few seconds of that, so that you can get a sense of what that was like. Now, you were a a lead singer or the lead singer. Well, I eventually was the lead singer. Uh, it, it, we had a, a, a difference. The recording, I think, you have. Um, uh, we had uh, a, a woman by the name of Sandy who was our lead singer, and uh, she later left to do a solo career, and uh, later we were just a quartet. Uh, but uh, the electric violin is the, the same, so if you play the violin solo, uh, that, that'll be – people will say, oh, that guitar thing? Oh, yeah, that's, that's the – oh, that's that violin thing. Okay. There is that signature guitar riff that was not on guitar. That at was all. not guitar riff. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that, why that people no would think it. There were no right. guitars. Yeah, it, you know, it sounds like somebody put a you know a, a, a bottleneck on their little finger and they're sliding it up and down the you know sliding it up and down the bass strings on the guitar. You, you could you could get something similar to that effect doing it doing it that way. So I can see why people might get a little confused and. It was a radical move. It was that was a risky thing to do in those days. We we were perhaps ahead of our time, perhaps out of our time, or perhaps out of our minds. I'm I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but uh, the band uh, we had a ferocious following of dozens of people, and, and um, beyond that, uh, I'm afraid we never really quite made it economically work. So uh, I did. Uh, after one national tour that ended somewhere in the hinterlands, uh, we returned to New York and I had to get a real job. And you became a studio, you had been a studio musician up to that point for... You know, not much. I had done, I, I'd done a lot of string work, string section work, um, but I started becoming better known as a keyboard player at that point, and, and that opened up, I was one of those... Rare people, then rare people, who had a classical background but also was a rock and roller and a jazz bow. And so I could kind of, if I had a, a, a what musicians call a chart, a piece of music in front of me that just had chords on it, and I had a synthesizer in front of me, I could make sounds that worked. I wasn't a particularly adept keyboard player, but it was really more about finding the sounds. And so... Uh, for whatever reason, over the next few years, I worked with 
I don't know, Grandmaster Flash. And uh, I, I was on a share cut that was cut by this up-and-coming producer named Michael Bolton, who then decided, then became a, a, a you know a frontman singer and did a little better than he did as a producer. Um, but uh, I mean, as as corny as some of the stuff that Michael did, he's actually a really good musician, and uh, uh, I was quite impressed with him. But uh, he also did a lot of jingle work, uh, which is how I was making my living at the time. Um, uh, which was you know playing on jingles, and then I at that point, segued into actually writing jingles. And that's where the Kit Kat thing came from. Wacky Wild Kool-Aid style, Mots and Mots and Mots and Mots, a whole lot of others. But actually, I did a lot more instrumental pieces. I The Cleos I won were for... Uh, yeah, Cleos are sort of the the Oscars of the of the uh, the, advertising. the advertising world. They were for uh, instrumental pieces that were a mixture of sound design and uh, an operatic singer and an orchestra. I mean, it was a little bit throw in the kitchen sink, and it became a kind of de rigueur there for a while in the late eighties. So uh, I rode that particular wave at a certain point. As a composer, you developed enough personal mojo to be able to do personal works. Um, I have here Divination by Mirrors, uh, which is a concerto for musical saw. <laughs> yeah, the, this piece was written specifically for a guy named Dale Stuckenbrook, who is a fabulous violinist uh, who doubles on saw and he's played saw since the age of four so uh, as long as he's played the violin um, he has very fine perfect pitch and he's a, a wonderful musician and he was a new york studio cat as a violinist but he also was a great saw player and he introduced me to it and uh part of what makes the piece distinctive is that it includes quarter tones written for the saw and the the orchestra is design is divided into two different screens it's 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 all string orchestra and it's divided into two groups each of which are tuned a quarter step away from each other now if people don't quite know what that means um the notes on the piano are in the white ones and the black ones are half step away from each other and this is the one in the cracks of the piano so it's really weird um, it's very difficult to hear, and it took a great musician like Dale to make it work. Later, um, uh, it was uh, it, uh, it attracted the interest of a wonderful saw player here on the West Coast named David Weiss, um, who was also the principal oboist of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. It always seems as though the great saw players play something else. I used to jam with some of the uh, animators. Uh, at Rhythm and Hughes, we would go out in the parking lot every uh, every Wednesday. What did somebody have a saw? Yeah, someone brought a saw, a musical saw to jam with, and I was just amazed that he had the kind of control necessary to get a melody out of it, let alone to be able to control it to within a quarter tone. Here's a uh, here's a selection from divination by mirrors and it's uh it's section three and i chose it because it has some interesting evolutions of phrasing 
uh, in, during the, uh, the first half of it. see the amazing complexity. Well, that's like a theremin before theremin, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I sometimes describe the, the bowed saw as the acoustic theremin. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, that's, that's very much what it is. It's, it's kind of a, a bizarre thing to think about. That you, and again, it, it was the control that this kind of instrument requires that just astonishes. I mean, this is... Well, it's the same sort of control you have to have as a violinist to begin with. Those guys don't have frets. Yeah, I can <laughs> you know? I can play most instruments I pick up, so long, stringed instruments I pick up, so long as it's got frets on it. A fretless instrument just gives me the willies. <laughs> well, there's a, an old saying about how do you get two violinists to play in quarter tones, and that is you write unison. <laughs> Good one. Yep. <laughs> so, so let's go. Let's steer back to the the film and TV and and point out some of the the, the science fiction works just to you know come back to our audience. For you to no, I'm here. I'm sorry. I was I was waiting for you to uh, walk that. To I don't. Through. I don't really have them all in order here. So, <laughs> okay. Um, well, uh, well. Uh, which things attracted your uh, attention? Do you? Uh, I'm. I. Well, maybe I should take the ball and run with it. Um, something smarter than the than the Simpsons, but that's for me. This is something smarter than the Simpsons, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, The Simpsons. There's an interesting story. I don't know. The Simpsons was pretty. Okay, I was going to tell you the Simpsons story. Why don't we tell you that right now? The uh, the Simpsons story was I was working for Hans Zimmer, uh, the, the aforementioned you know young keyboard player named Hans who was playing in the Buggles, and uh, Hans had been hired to score the the film. Uh, Alf Clausen did a great job on the television version of the show, but they wanted a more cinematic approach, so they hired Hans. And uh, he had hired singers for, uh, I don't remember what, in it, and had they were going to have to pay them for all their time, but all they had was a few minutes of, of recording to do with them. And so he said, well, write another piece, uh, well, why don't you write something based on that spider pig thing that that Homer sings in the the first half? I said, sure. What should it sound like? He said, beautiful and short. So, uh, that was the entire direction. So um, he was quite pleased with it, and we ended up really recording ridiculous. it in oh nine God. languages or something. That's it was hysterical. really ridiculous. It was great no, fun. The, the...
The difference, uh, the difference in your approach versus Hans Zimmer's, uh, both of which I believe are informed by the instruments with which you worked in the earlier days of your careers. Hans Zimmer of the of the Buggles, you know, video killed the radio star, and that remarkable electronic percussion that he used in that music. In those days, synthesis was really great at doing percussion. And everything it else it did sounded like electronic beeps and farts. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not sure who did what in the Buggles. The Buggles had a great lineup. Uh, Trevor Horn was in that band, too, as I recall, who became one of the great producers of the 80s and 90s. And um, he, I don't know what was, you know, who whose contribution was what in that. But Hans is one of those people who for whatever reason, tends to stir up a lot of passion from people, both for and against. Um, there are people who really love his music. There are people who don't, who are offended by his methodology, which is that he tends to use a group of people. He oversees everything, and he has people do tasks that he uh, assigns them. But... Uh, Having been one of the people in the trenches working for Hans, I will tell you a few things. First of all, conception is everything in a film score. Film score is not about music. It's about storytelling. There's no better storyteller than Hans when it comes to music. He's a great producer, maybe the best film music producer uh, on the planet. And uh, I... He, it, it's an appropriate use of, of time and resources. So I have a lot of respect for the guy, and I learned a lot in the years I was uh, at Remote Control, which is the facility that, that he owns in, Sa in Santa Monica. Um, and so uh, I often feel like I'm called on to defend him from the haters, but uh, yeah, he oh, does a well, pretty good job his, defending himself. His music is... Music. I was about to comment that his music is very much informed by his mastery of synthesized music. Uh, I, he wasn't, didn't he do Driving Miss Daisy? Wasn't that his? Yeah, yeah, with the, the, the synth clarinet and all of that. Because they were looking for a sound that was different from, that was made reference to rural, I, I mean, I'm guessing, I've never discussed that score with him, but, um, it, you know, they were looking for something that, that referenced traditional American music without being retro at the same, you know, sort of being up to date at the same time. So at the time, having that synth clarinet um, as part of the, the color was uh, important. Uh, but I, I think that, he, yeah, synthesized, he has a great sense of sound, but it's also the production style before Hans, the typical orchestral date would consist of you would have the whole orchestra in one room you would put up what they call a uh, a, a tree uh, that would uh, record was the the get the sense of the full ensemble playing together and so forth. And it's fabulous for classical sounding music. But what Hans did was, well, why do you 
you know, we're, we're in the, the rock and roll era. Why don't we record an orchestra like a rock band? And th- the precedent for this was already set with people like George Martin with the Beatles, who did very close miking on the strings and uh, in that wonderful uh, uh, studio number two at Abbey Road. And um, it it is Hans revolutionized how orchestras were recorded and uh, for example the famous Brahm sound in Inception is really uh, because of very unusual miking techniques they opened up a piano and they stuck microphones inside the piano and put the pedal down play from a distance into it so it's oh wow I didn't know that yeah, so it, it's a question of, of treating the, – the thing that pop musicians understand that a lot of classical musicians don't get is that the only th- – the performance is not the people playing it. It's what comes out of the speakers. That is the performance. Right. And that's what George Martin understood, and that's what has become bit by bit the norm in film and television uh, production. And still, beyond that, there is, as you say, the conception, the the inner voice that begins as the concept uh, for each individual piece. And Hans Zimmer uh, was strongly influenced by the fact that he could use percussion really, really well in these, you know, in these compositions. But the other voices weren't really quite up to snuff, so he tended to lean very heavily on percussion, which is why, with a Hans Zimmer tune, you remember that the music is great, and it fits the visuals perfectly, and it's deep, and it's rich, but it does not have, um, it does, it's not hummable. (laughs) It's not, it's not something that you can walk away and carry it in your head. Whereas with you... Your music seems to be much more informed by the violin and the, the uh, orchestral strings, uh, which was the foundation of your background. So you tend much more towards melodic approaches to your composition, as, as evidenced in the soundtrack that you did for Siren. Well, well, thank you. I, I think that that's a, a, a valid observation. Um, I actually Hans is a pretty good melodist too. But but in terms of my own work, uh, I think there is a kind of DNA from being a string player that is in there. A much as I, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Harry Gregson Williams, uh, a really fine composer who I've also done some work for. Uh, he began as a singer, and you hear that in his work. There is a sense of uh, a, a vocal melody. I was a, a songwriter before I was ever scored anything, and so I often think that the voice is in there as well as the violin. We have um, another piece here, and it's from an album called M2. Is that correct? Well, M- Music Squared, actually. M Squared. We didn't know how to... to I still can't figure out how you put that in an email, how you make the, the, the rate. <laughs> you'll have to show me. Ah, uh-huh. uh, I cheat. I copy and paste it from a, a you know, word program. Yeah, I'm too lazy. What can I tell you? But uh, This particular yeah. cut is was written for Mari. That's right. Mari. Whom you mentioned earlier. Who I mentioned earlier. This is called Mari's Dream. It was a little uh, a wink to her. And... Um, this uh, man, Parrish, who is my 
partner on the M Squared project, it was like Manny and Michael M Squared. That was the joke. And um, he Manny is best known as the godfather of EDM. He had big hits back in the 80s like uh, Hip Hop Bebop Don't Stop and Boogie Down Bronx and all these other, you know, things that just... Be, be, when hip, what was called hip hop was really uh, proto EDM music. And then what became what they called hip hop later was sort of evolved uh, out of some of the sort of a branch of this. But at the time, that music would now probably be called electro. And I was very fortunate that Man Parrish just happened to be my through the wall neighbor on 38th Street in New York. And he would get these really cool pieces of gear, and he was he's an incredibly generous guy, great producer, and he would call me up and he'd go, Michael, Michael, I just got this cool thing. It, it, it's called it's called the 808 808 drum machine. You, you got to check it out. And you know he would hand it to me over the fire uh, the, the, we would go out on the fire escapes and he would hand me the gear and then I would use it in something. So we've been friends ever since then. So it tells you how long we've been friends that it goes back to the invention of the 808 drum machine. And um, it's, a couple of years ago, we decided to do a project together where he took essentially some pieces of mine and did remixes of them and then added his own elements. So uh, Mari's Dream was one that started out as a piano piece. Here is an excerpt from Mari's Dream from the album. uh, Oh, gosh, what is it? It's uh, music for film. Is is that right? Fix it in post. (laughs) I'll I'll have to fix it in post. (laughs) Fix it in post. M squared. That was an excerpt from Mari's Dream. And she has vocals later on in that, I, I believe. 
Yeah, actually, she does. Uh, she, uh, and uh, there's also some additional uh, vocals that Manny added, but uh, uh, that man perish to you. And, uh, ma- you know, I was just talking with somebody today about what a fantastic scene that was in the early 80s uh, in New York and uh, by that man perish was part of and Klaus Nomi and uh, uh, Joey Arias and uh, a lot of other people who ended up having a tremendous influence on people like David Bowie. Um, and it, they were sort of part of the LGBTQ community, and uh, which ultimately, quite sadly, got devastated by AIDS. Uh, we lost Klaus to, to AIDS. Um, but uh, they were... Uh, I was fortunate enough to live next door to all these uh, crazy queens. <laughs> it's... They're good neighbors. Why not? Well, you know, really creative people that that uh, that Manny uh, hung with, and so uh, he introduced me to Boy George as well. I worked with him. Not my favorite person in the world, but yeah, he was I'm really talented. Losing my notes is what I'm doing. Oh, okay. Well, I've got I've got uh, Wikipedia in front of me, which is helping. I wanted to go back to some more more sci-fi movie stuff. There's and I just went to. My- well, I, I, I scored a, a film called Amelia 2.0 a couple of years ago that is a really great um, little uh, gem of a science fiction film um, directed by um, uh, Adam Orton, who's also did all the VFX for it. And uh, I mean, it's one of those films that that looks a whole lot more expensive than it was to make. Um, and, uh, and one of the best things I got out of it is one of the secondary actors in the film is a guy named Chris Ellis, who is a fantastic actor, but also a great cartoonist. And we've become besties as, ever since doing that film. Um, but uh, what else do you see? Oh, that, let's that, see. Stuff like, you know, you you've worked with uh, Hans Zimmer on things like uh, Dunkirk, but also uh, the, the Dark Knight. Uh, yeah, in fact, you know, The Dark Knight, uh, it, I have, you can't see this, you need the visual here, but there's there's a sound that the, the every time you see the Joker that goes like this, and that's a pencil bouncing <laughs> on the D string of my violin. It is, uh, and then run through all sorts of effects and so forth, but uh, that is well, that that's sort of the, the Joker's signature. The performance is the final product, not the uh, not the musician operating the instrument at the moment very much so and that's true of of record production and has been you know since the 60s but it it took film and television a, a lot longer to understand that concept you have um you have been working with Hans Zimmer on and off for quite a while um do you yeah mega mind <laughs> remember mega mind oh yes i, I loved that. that film that's right you worked on that yeah, um, in theme. fact, I think I contributed four <laughs> bars to the theme or something. It was, you know, uh, 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 Tom Holkenberg, who's uh, Junkie XL, and uh, uh, also worked on that film. And I think that the main theme is, you know, mostly Hans and some Tom and some of me. And um, yeah, that was a. That's one of my favorite stories about Hans is from that, which is that uh, they were. It's a long, involved story. So, but the 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 long and the short of it is that uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was very concerned about the film and tended to 
to to dismiss things offhand. And he and Hans had written the perfect love theme for it based on the fact that he understood that the character, the central character who was a curmudgeon was actually an, a romantic at heart. And he wrote this thing that was very reminiscent of the French New Wave. And Jeffrey heard it, the first time he heard it, he goes, oh, that's like the being on the French Riviera in 1967. No, no, that won't do at all. And two weeks later, he kept saying, well, let me let me tweak it a little bit. Let me, let me do this. Two weeks later, I remember Jeffrey saying, well, at least we have a great love theme. And I was like, when did that happen? When did he go from complete dismissal to I love this? I and that's the magic of these things get into his brain and he has to, it has to percolate for a while. It has to marinate. It has to, whatever your metaphor is. Once, once a creative piece, something, once something you're working on takes hold of your brain, it just sort of take, takes root and lives there until it matures. I I can tell you a story, and oh, there's someone at our door. Um, I can tell you a story that uh, about something that happened to me uh, not too long ago, where uh, on on a project I was working on, where the um, producers had rejected what I'd done and given me notes, and then gave me notes again, and then gave me notes again, and then gave me notes again, and finally the post production supervisor played them my first version. They went, yes, he finally got it. And you know what? These are it's it sounds funny in a sense you go, well, what sort of idiots are these? They're not. They're smart people. It's just context makes a huge difference. And sometimes you have to go there's a wonderful line I always liked from um Zoo Story by uh Edward Albee, which is sometimes you have to go a very long way out of your way to come back a short distance directly. Yeah. that makes a lot of sense actually. So we have we have a lot of cuts from Siren, and um, one of the other ones that was noteworthy, one of the ones that you pointed out that should be noteworthy, is Goodnight Sisters, which is the tenth cut. Oh, so it's not Goodnight Sisters. Do, 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 do. No, huh? I don't think so. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, uh, this was actually Nine. a scene. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, this was actually a scene. I, uh, uh, I'll do a little spoiler alert. I'll do a little spoiler alert. Rin, uh, who is the central that, character, uh, who is Rin, a mermaid who's, who's come ashore and now has feet just like humans, but doesn't behave like humans at all, has been befriended by these two humans, by a man and a woman who are a couple. There, she's sleeping on the couch and they're sleeping in there, bed and she goes, oh, well, I guess that's where I'm supposed to be. And she kind of gets up and gets in bed with them. And you are not quite sure whether this is a good thing, a bad thing, a sexy thing, a weird thing, a threatening thing. I mean, it has great ambiguity, but the piece of music is about her finding the piece of music is about her finding getting on her feet, so to speak. And finding her role in the world. Finding her, yes, exactly, and her power. So that's that. So this it ends up being a theme that comes back again and again. As uh, we, we nicknamed it, so the here is power theme. Good night, sisters.
was that was some an amazing piece of music. That's that first swell of the uh, the violas coming in. Um, it just feels like an embrace. Well, there is an embrace happening in the well, in the scene, so that's a good sign. There is an embrace happening oh, well, in the good. in the scene, so that's a good sign. Nailed it, then. <laughs> well done. Well done. Oh my gosh. I mean, that just gives me goosebumps. Uh, and we have not yet seen a single frame of this show yet. When does and, that uh, when does that start? Ah. Well, it's it actually started last week. It's on Thursday nights on uh depending upon your time zone, either eight or seven on Freeform. It's also they have a Freeform app where you can watch it after the fact. Oh, and excellent. It's on Hulu That's as good. well. So that people can uh go to Hulu and can they go to Hulu and binge watch the whole thing? Is it all up? Uh, I don't think that. I think they're just they're putting it up as they air. At some point, you'll yeah, be able to freeform watch is, it, but is not a cable yet. channel, and and they've got a regular schedule. Right, exactly. So you know, you were asking about other science fiction oriented things. Uh, there's two other projects that of that I've been involved with that people may be familiar with. Um, about four years ago, I was approached to along with my then assistant, a guy named Lucas Cantor, who was my partner on this project. And we were approached to do uh, a dark and scary arrangement of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, the 80s hit by, uh, you know, the bouncy little dance tune from uh, Tears for Fears. And so we did it, uh, a really scary and dark version of it. And they had this singer that they they wanted us to use who was this teenager from New Zealand that we'd never heard of at the, that point and hadn't yet had a record released in the United States. And they sent us this one cut of hers to, as a point of reference. And it turned out it was an anomaly. It was her singing in her head voice and really high. And so I wrote it in a, a good key for uh, a typical female singer, sent it to her in New Zealand, got it back, and she'd sung it an octave lower. Well, this was Lord. And uh, did I? And, and it became her signature uh, sound is this low sound. And uh, then that the the piece ended up being used in Hunger Games: Catching Fire, and then later for Assassin's Creed Unity promotional stuff, and you know many other films uh, as well. And so. Uh, that's that's something that has a sort of science fictional edge to it between the Hunger Games and the Assassin's Creed. Uh, mm-hmm. And then uh, last year, um, I was approached to write the theme song for the first Resident Evil VR game. And uh, the, the clients are Japanese, and they uh, wanted something. They they liked what I'd done with the Lord piece, and they, they said, well, we want something that... Everybody will recognize, but we don't want to spend a huge pile of money licensing a popular song. So that left me with, okay, what do people around the world recognize that is public domain? And I thought of this song I knew from my youth um, called Go Tell Aunt Rhody, uh, which has the lyric, um, 
the old gray goose is dead. And I went, well, if you just change it to everybody's dead. And then I write a verse that's sort of, re- re- you know, that re- is like this, makes references the game. It had this bonus, which is that I, I was born in Japan. And I, I knew that in Japan, um, they have a song called Musunde. And Musunde is, um, which goes, Musunde hiraite te oute Musunde, which means... Close hands, open hands, clap hands, close hands. And um, it's a song they teach to every five-year-old. And it, it, the reason it's the same tune as Go Tell Aunt Rhody is because when they instituted universal education in Japan in the 1870s or 80s, they brought in American teachers to do it, and they took American songs and put Japanese lyrics to them. So most Japanese people believe this is a traditional Japanese nursery rhyme and didn't realize it was an American song. And it wasn't originally American either. It was French, I think, and then British. And then so, so it is a world song, and um, uh, that one would be a game that may be especially to your for listeners. those who have the coin to you know pop for an HTC Vive or an Oculus Rift we're not there yet but we know people who are one of our DJs has one and maybe he will uh, be able to take a, a dip into this world and tell us what he finds there you go well uh, it's not for everyone it it's been a big hit uh, both the straightforward version and the VR version. My wife and I tried the VR version and um, I was fine with it, but um, she got sick to her stomach, not from it being too scary, but just the motion of the VR. And so it's, it, it works better. When yeah. You're, VR you know, frame lag is, is 20. a real thing. And, and uh, I think the only way they're ever going to overcome it is by brute force um, because we just need about half again more, computing power than we currently have driving our VR displays. It exists. They just haven't applied it yet. And, the, the, and when the price comes down, we'll have it. Yeah, I'd be very curious because um, I, I don't know if that's the only problem, but it certainly is uh, the, the the feedback loop in sight is incredibly fast. And when it lags by what doesn't seem like a lot to people, like a few and milliseconds, the other thing is it'll that totally about, screw you up. Um, 11% of the population just gets sick looking at artificial 3D no matter what form it takes. And this is true. I was working at Rhythm and Hughes Studios, and uh, we were doing tests with various kinds of 3D. We worked with real 3D, which which was the dominant one, and real, or rather, real D, which was the dominant form. And then uh, there were uh, there were other kinds of of 3D glasses. Um, I think Kodak had one, Disney had one, and real D is the only one that actually settled out because it uses radially polarized lenses so that if you tilt your head, the effect doesn't go away. Uh, but what we found was that about 11% so of us when were getting did, sick, when were you, no matter what. Of us were getting sick. Yep, there you go. Well, one out of nine it ain't great, but uh, better well, than well, yeah. nine yeah. out of nine. But it's, some people just can't do it, and they have well, this so sensitivity when you to it, and no amount of technolo- technological tweaking is going to fix it. I was so at Rhythm Gene, and when Hughes were you at from about Hughes? 2003 to about 2013. Ah, okay. Well, I, I used to do, I did a lot of advertising work with Rhythm and Hughes where they were the, the post, uh, you know, they did the VFX and so forth. They were, this is before 
but it was before you were there. This is by then I'd already mm-hmm. transitioned into yeah, uh, film and television. Rhythm and Hughes did a lot of uh, commercials as well as the as their feature work. The Nason XB was all them. Ah. Uh, I've got a funny story about that that I can tell you after the show. Okay. <laughs> I've got one more movie I want to oh, throw okay. in, and oh, it's not science fiction, but it oh, is in the away. spirit of science making fiction, making it yourself, and that's uh, the uh, score for uh, Landfill Harmonic. Oh, yeah, I love that film. I, I love the story it, 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 even more than the film. Um, uh, it, it's... Uh, for those people who are not familiar with the story, uh, there is an orchestra in Paraguay that is uh, was put together by uh, originally by an environmental engineer who just happened to be a really good musician, and uh, he went to work on the this very large landfill in the town of Cateota, which is near the capital there, and uh, found that you know that basically the kids there had no future to do anything and he thought well you know let's put together an orchestra and you know there was all this interest the only problem was they had no money for instruments so they started building them out of recycled materials from the landfill and uh they they are called the land they're they're called the recycled orchestra of Cateota, and they're world famous at this point uh but uh they still perform People say, well, can't they afford real instruments now? And the answer is yes, and in fact, they they do have them, but they also still perform with these recycled instruments in part because that's their roots. That's right. That's right. And um, uh, once again, sung by Mari, who's our siren, um, and she was born in Nicaragua and uh, sp- spoke Spanish as her first language, so she contributed to the lyrics of the song as well because they're in Spanish. Uh, by the way, I wanted to mention, uh, even though we don't yet have a Siren album out, if people are interested in her singing and her songwriting, uh, there is an album called Samira and the Wind. Samira is her middle name. Samira and the Wind, it's sort of a little joke because my name is Levine, which in French is Levin, and that's the wind. Uh, so uh, it's, at any rate, it's called, you can get it on CD Baby, and you can get it on, you can play it on Spotify and uh, various other f- places. But Thank Samira you very much for joining us for this week's episode of The Event Horizon, Michael. It has been a real pleasure and something of an honor to have you with us. It's, it's rare that we get to speak to artists of your caliber. Well, that's very kind of you, and uh, this was delightful. Thanks for uh, thinking of me. You have been listening to episode 195 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for April 7th, 2018. Our guest today has been... Let me start that again. You have been listening to episode 195 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for April 7th, 2018. Our guest today has been the accomplished film and television composer, screenwriter, and producer, Michael A. Levine, whose most recent work includes the soundtrack for the fantasy series Siren, currently playing on Freeform and Hulu. Your hosts have been station manager Gene Turnbow and our executive producer, Susan Fox. If you liked this week's episode and you would like to hear more of them, please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and chip in. There is no national public radio fund coming to our rescue each month. That comes from you, the listeners, directly. 
you may also make one-time donations via our PayPal button at the bottom of the site or click on the Buy Us a Coffee button at KryptonRadio.com. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The navigator was Christine Cherry. The science officer was science fiction illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. And the captain was voiced by none other than legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2018 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated, obviously with the exception of the musical inclusions this week. The Event Horizon... It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.